Uh, believe it or not, today is our, our second to last Sunday service here for the calendar year, for, this, for the semester. We've got one more service in December, and uh, that's going to be on December 8th, and so we'd love for you to join us for that. Uh, but in light of Thanksgiving break coming up for the next two Sundays, we will not be having services here in the Hub. And so uh, if you are around and you're in town and you're looking for a place to worship, we would love for you to join us at our sponsor church. A bunch of us will be there at their 1030 service uh, for the next two Sundays, and um, that's going to be at the State College Alliance Church. And the address to our sponsor church is in your bulletins, and you can Google map it, and it's about a five to ten minute drive off campus. And so the next two weeks we'll be there worshiping with us, and so you're more than welcome to join us, and uh, we'll come back here in the hub on December 8th and wrap things up. And so we'd love for you to join us for that. In any case, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, the last couple of weeks, Weeks, you'll know that we've been in this series that we are calling Spiritual Things. Spiritual Things. And this, this series is loosely based on the, the Netflix hit show, Stranger Things. And this series, similar to the on uh, things relating to the supernatural realm. If you're familiar with the show, it has a lot to do with the, the, the supernatural. And, and we began this series by talking about the real upside down, that there is actually this alternate reality, the spiritual reality that is in place as we speak currently, and it impacts and it interfaces with our reality here in real time. And last week, uh, for the second part of the series, we, we talked about how uh, in light of this supernatural reality, we have a supernatural enemy of our soul. And so we talked about the devil, demons, and demogorgons, right? Last week, we talked about who the devil is and, and how demons interact with us and how they, how they manifest in our everyday lives. And, and a lot of times, it's not the way we imagine. It's not like, you know, movies like The Exorcist or Poltergeist or demon-possessed nuns, right? Like it's, it's oftentimes in, in subtle ways that the, that the demon love, demons interface and interact with humans. And we talked about some of the tactics that the enemy loves to use. By the way, if you missed any of those messages, they're all on our website, they're on our podcast, and you can catch up uh, that way if you'd like. But today, today I want to wrap up this short little three-part series, and I want to talk to you today about the power of our eleven. The power of our 11. That's what I've titled my message today. I want to talk to you today a little bit about the power of our 11. Now, if you're familiar with the show Stranger Things, you're certainly familiar with the name 11. Uh, 11 is the name of a character in the story played by Millie Bobby Brown. And, and this character in the story, she's got these She's got these supernatural abilities, these supernatural powers. For instance, she has the ability to move things with her mind, right? Like she, she, can, move, she can move an entire van and throw an entire van across a highway, right? She has the ability to locate people using these supernatural powers and these, these abilities. She can acquire critical, necessary information in, in sort of these unexplainable ways. She's got these special powers, but more importantly than any of those things, and as cool and fascinating as any of those things are, Eleven seems to have the unique ability to defeat these evil demogorgons, 
These demogorgons, these creatures who seek and run around attacking humans and killing off humans. And so here these, these, these humans are like trying to defeat these demogorgons by way of gun and machine guns and firearm. And, and, and to no avail, they try and try. But Eleven seems to have this unique ability to actually overcome these demogorgons with her powers. Consequently, in this war between humans and these creatures... Eleven becomes their secret weapon of choice. Now the question is, in this spiritual battle that you and I find ourselves in, in this spiritual war that we are caught in the middle of, the question is, what's our secret weapon of choice? What's our eleven? Do we even have an eleven? Because you see, let me tell you right now, no amount of firearms, no amount of human efforts, no amount of your best efforts is going to be able to defeat the enemy of your soul. We need a different set of weapons and tools to engage in this spiritual war. And so I want to look at a passage of scripture today that's going to help us kind of understand what our 11 actually is. What is our actual weapon of choice? And, and this is the passage that we actually looked at at the start of this series a couple of weeks back. Except we only looked at the first half of this passage. And if we continue on, we see that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 gives us specific weapons and tools to use against the enemy of our soul. And so turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Ephesians chapter 6. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll get some folks uh, coming around and they'll get a Bible to you. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're going to be spending our time here today. And we're going to start at verse 10. Ephesians 6 verse 10. And we'll also put the text up here on the screen. And uh, I want us to read, uh, pick up where we left off, uh, or pick up in the same place where we started this series. And we'll start at verse 10 and carry through to verse 18. And I'd love for us to tune in. We talked about acquiring a supernatural worldview. I'd love to see this text through a supernatural lens, okay, as we talk about spiritual things. Ephesians 6, verse 10, this is Paul writing. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Just pause there for a quick second. I don't want us to gloss over this. Did you catch that? Did, did you catch what Paul just said there? We are not to be strong in our own might. That is not how you're going to win this war against the enemy of your soul. We are not to be strong in our own might. We're not to just power through and expect to overcome the enemy of our soul with our own ingenuity, with our own strength, with our own might, and with our own willpower. I wish I can. I think I can. I think I can. That's not how you're going to win this war. That's not how you're going to win this battle. No, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Friends, when we fight the enemy of our soul with his might, we win every single time. We win every single time. And so how do we do that? How do we be strong in the Lord and in his might? Well, verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, we, we talked about some of these schemes, right? Last week, we talked about some of the scheming that the devil does. He does that primarily through deception, Right? He does that through temptation and accusation. And now Paul is about to instruct us on how we can stand firm against such schemes. He goes on and he says, For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, 
This isn't a natural battle. This is not a natural war. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, this is where we stopped a couple of weeks back. At the start of the series, this is where we stopped. And we stopped here very intentionally for a reason. Because I wanted us to acknowledge that first and foremost, there is a spiritual reality in place as we speak. And the spiritual reality that we find ourselves in informs us that there is an enemy of God. Right? If you were here last week, we talked about the name Satan. That's the Hebrew word for Satan, which means the adversary, of the enemy of God. And this enemy of God, Satan, seeks to destroy all that is good and right with God. And all that is good that God seeks to do, Satan seeks to stand against and oppose. That includes all the good things that God seeks to do in your life and in my life. All the good things and all the work that God wants to do in your life and in my life, Satan stands opposed to those realities. That's what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 6, leading up to verse 12. He says there is a spiritual reality like this. And so in the midst of this reality, in the midst of this war that is going on right now, the Apostle Paul doesn't end the message there. And praise God that he doesn't. He doesn't end the message there and say, well... Good luck, people. I hope it fares well for you. Godspeed. I hope after all this war shakes out, you make out all right. Fingers crossed. Right? Like, yeah, that's not what Paul says. In fact, he goes into great detail on how we can go about engaging in this spiritual battle. And newsflash, spoiler alert, all of that, just right up front. We win. Okay? We win. But how? How? What does that look like? Well, he continues on in verse 13, and this is where we pick up from where we left off. He says, therefore, therefore, in light of all of that spiritual reality taking place, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. In other words, not just parts of it, but all of it. All of it, because I'm telling you right now, church, we need all of it to fight in this battle. We need all of it. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. We're going to end it there for a minute. In this passage, Paul lays out six elements of a warrior's armor. He lays out, he paints a picture of a, a sort of a, a soldier in mind, almost a Roman soldier, if you would, in his mind, and he begins to play, begins to, begins to lay out the different pieces of the armor. And he, and, and he says, this is how you defeat the enemy, by putting on the belt, putting on the breastplate, by putting on the shoes, the shield, the helmet, and the sword, these six things, these are all essential pieces to a soldier's armor that provide him the best shot at winning this battle. Anything else, 
anything else, he would be underprepared for this war. That's why Paul says, put on not just parts. This is, friends, this is not like, well, you know what? I'm kind of into the breastplate, but I'm not into the shoes. Like, like, like I'm kind of into the shield, but I could do without the sword. Now, this, Paul says, you need to put on the whole armor of God, not just pieces that you want, not just pieces that you feel comfortable with, but you got to put on the whole armor of God, and all of these pieces are essential for spiritual warfare. I want to talk about each of them real quickly, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into each of them in great detail. But I do think it's worth looking at each piece of the armor and how these individual components play into the spiritual battle that we are in. Like, how, how, does, how does this belt, how does this breastplate, how does the shoes, how do all of these play into engaging in this spiritual war? And so the first piece of armor that Paul mentions is an interesting piece of the armor. I'll tell you why in just a minute. He talks about the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Now, you got to understand, the belt was what traditionally wrapped around the waist and around the abdomen area of the soldier's armor. It was actually what supported and held together the rest of the pieces of the armor. In fact, the breastplate, because the breastplate was this massive two-piece metal suit that soldiers would wear, instead of instead of having it completely rely on the shoulder strength, so the, the belt was actually what supported, in part, the breastplate for the soldier's armor. And so the belt was essentially the piece that held all of the other pieces of the armor together, which I can probably expound on that in greater detail as it relates to truth. But here's the other thing I want to point out about the belt. When he says the belt of truth, I, I want us to understand this. The belt, the belt in the armor landscape, the, the armor of visual, is actually unseen. You don't see the belt because the belt was what went underneath the breastplate and all the other external pieces of the armor. What's interesting about this piece of the armor is it's the only piece in the armor of this six-piece armor that Paul lays out that you actually don't see from the outside. Everything else is visible. The breastplate, the shield, the sword, the shoes, everything else is visible but the belt is the only piece of the armor you don't see because it lays underneath all the external pieces of the armor. Friends, truth is what is underneath all that is visible and seen in your life. Truth, hear me, truth is what lays underneath at your core base level. It is what lays underneath all that is visible and seen in your life. So your decisions, your behaviors, your thought patterns, your choices, your, your words, they all flow from this unseen place of deeply held truth and deeply felt convictions. I like to think of it this way. The covering of our gut is also the convictions of our gut. That's what Paul's talking about there. When he talks about the belt of truth, he's talking about the covering of our gut is also the convictions of our gut. And what are convictions? You know this, our convictions are these beliefs and truths that we hold on to deep down in our gut. Like convictions are the stuff that you feel deep down in here. Convictions are not things that you just kind of think up on a day-to-day -day basis. Convictions are the things that you feel deeply down in here and you make choices. You live out of that place of conviction. And friends, I'm going to tell you right now, we all have convictions. Some of them might be 
determined by scripture. Some of them might be determined by your family upbringing. Whatever your convictions, however your convictions have been formed, believe me when I say this, we all have convictions. We all have a set of truths that we live by. But now what the Apostle Paul is saying is, if you want to be sure to stand firm against the attacks of the enemy, you better make sure that your truths are in line with God's truths. That your convictions, the things that you feel in your gut, are the same things that God feels deep down inside. Our covering, the covering of our gut, is also the convictions of our gut. That is the belt of truth. Without it, everything else falls apart. You ever watch someone who lives their life with zero conviction on anything? They don't stand for anything. There's, there's, there's no movement. There, there's no advancement. Their life just kind of floats by like, like a vapor in the air, just like a mist in the air. No, no, Paul says, no, no, no. Put on the belt of truth so that the things that you feel deep down in here are things that God feels deep down up there. That's the belt of truth. And you got to also remember, the primary tactic of the enemy, if it's deception, the only way you're going to stand firm against the face of deception in the face of deception is by girding yourself up with truth. That's why he says the first thing, first thing right out of the gate. He says, like, forget about the breastplate. The breastplate, everyone, everyone sees the breastplate. It's like this big display thing on your chest. No, 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 forget about that. I, I, want, you to, I want you to focus on the things that are unseen. I want you to focus on your covering your convictions. What are your truths that you're living by? By the way, I hate that terminology, live your truth, right? Like, what the heck does that mean, like live your truth? Well, yeah, I, I get what it means, but Paul would push hard against that. He says, no, 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 it's not about living your truth. It's about aligning your truth with kingdom truths, aligning your truth with what God deems as true. That's what the belt of truth is. It's, it's what holds everything else together. Now, I want to jump to the second piece of the armor. The second piece of the armor he goes into is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate, if you picture, again, this armor, uh, this Roman soldier's armor, was another vital piece of the soldier's armor because it actually protected their most vital organs. The breastplate was what protected their heart, their lungs. Uh, it, it protected all their internal organs that, that is required for living. By the way, I heard one person say it this way. The reason why we raise our hands in worship is because... It's because oftentimes when, when, when people of, of antiquity, the, the only opening access, because of the breastplate, covered their front and their back and covered their, 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 these parts of their body, the sides were actually open. And so when a soldier would raise his hands, it was not only a sign of surrender, but he was actually exposing himself to vulnerability. He was actually exposing all of himself. And you see, in worship, when we raise our hands, what we're saying is, God, we give you access to our hearts. We're giving you access to our hearts in ways that, that we're not trying to cover up and guard ourselves. No, 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 we're, we're wide open to you. So, so the breastplate was what protected the soldier from critical attack. And, and so Picture this, if you picture a war, you would never see a, a warrior stepping out onto the battlefield without a breastplate. You would just never see that. That would be like a suicide mission, sending out a soldier onto the field without a breastplate. But now the question is, why would Paul associate that part of the armor with righteousness? Like what about righteousness 
said to Paul, you know what? This is to be the, the breastplate of the armor. Folks, let me just clarify something here. And, and if you want, you could just jot this down if this is helpful. Righteousness is just a fancy word for right being that leads to right living. That's what righteousness is. If you're wondering what righteousness, righteousness, like that's such a Bible word, right? That's such a Christianese term. What does that even mean? It just means this. It means right being that leads to right living. That's what righteousness is. You see, righteousness isn't just about doing right things. That's what a lot of people think, whether in the church or outside of the church. Righteousness is righteous deeds, Right, like, you know what scripture says about righteous deeds, right? It's like filthy rags. It counts for nothing, right? Like, so on one hand, you, when we think about righteousness, we can't just think about it in light of doing right things. You see, doing right things without any right sense of being leads to empty religion. That's all it does. Right doing without a right sense of being on the inside, all that does and all that produces is empty religion. Pharisaical living. On the other hand, right being that never leads to right living leads to dead religion. And James talks extensively about this. According to James, you would have to ask yourself the question, am I even truly right on the inside if I'm not even leading a right life? You see, righteousness is about both, right being that leads to right living. And friends, hear me, hear me. When we walk the line of who we are and what we do, right being and right living, we are essentially putting on a kind of breastplate. Because the enemy will love nothing more than to convince you that you only need one. Heck, if he can convince you that you don't need either, all the better. But look, if he can convince you that, that you, all you need is to focus on doing good things and don't worry about your core identity and the kind of person you're becoming. Don't worry about your heart. Don't worry about your being. Just focus on doing right things. And if he can keep you busy in the world, just trying and trying to do good things in the world, he's already got a leg up. Or if he can convince you that your actions don't really matter, your choices don't really matter. Your decisions that you make don't really matter. Your words, they don't really matter. As long as you're convinced on the inside that you're good, I'm good on the inside. I'm, 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 I'm Gucci, man. I'm good. I don't need to worry about any of that. Paul said, no. In fact, the moment we buy into either one of those lies, that all I need is right living, or all I need is right being, is the moment we put down our breastplate. And we make ourselves completely vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. We live our lives in the name of empty or dead religion. And the enemy has already won. Why? Because we boil down the breastplate of righteousness as just doing good things. Or just being good or feeling good on the inside. Now he says, right being the work that God wants to do in your life is as critically important as the fruit of your life. Right being that leads to right living. It's a changed heart that leads to a changed life. That's the breastplate of righteousness. So he says, put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. And the next piece of armor he goes into is the gospel shoes of peace. The gospel shoes of peace. And these shoes aren't your Air Max. These aren't your, your Yeezys. These are, these are a different type of shoes. This is a gospel shoes of peace. I want you to hold that word peace for a minute. I don't know about you, 
But when I, think, when I hear that, right, when I hear that in this passage, I find it a bit ironic that in the midst of all of this warfare language and in the midst of all of this suiting up for war, Paul mentions that our feet are to be readied with these gospel shoes of peace. Now, why in the world would he mention putting on shoes of peace when we're gearing up for a war? When we're getting ready for a battle, shoes of peace. You see, I think this is Paul's powerful yet very subtle way of reminding us who this battle is against. This is, this is, this is, this is so foundational. I, 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 in other words, I don't think these shoes are to be applied or used with the enemy. Like all these other pieces of the armor, we, we, we directly associate it with, with combat against the enemy. But I think these shoes are not intended to be applied or used with the enemy. In other words, I don't think the takeaway here is we are to make peace with the enemy. I don't think that's what Paul is getting at. Rather, I think these shoes are meant to be used amongst us. That there should be a gospel of peace amongst the people of God. And when we think about the body of Christ, one of the hallmarks of the body of Christ is this good news of peace. That there is peace amongst us. Listen, friends, we've got to understand something. The person sitting next to you is not your enemy. Your roommate is not your enemy. I, even when they live like a slob, they're not your enemy. Even when they don't put away the dishes, they're not your enemy, right? Your ex is not your enemy. Even if they dumped you, they're not your enemy. The person who seems to manage to get under your skin in inexplicable ways, they are not your enemy. You see, you and I have one enemy, and when we get that confused, you end up fighting each other when the real battle is supposed to be fought out there. We start tearing at each other. One of my mentors put it well when he said it this way. He, he said, if you do not have a robust theology of spiritual warfare, that's what we're talking about here. That's what this morning is about. It's about acquiring a healthy, robust theology of spiritual warfare. He says, if you don't have a robust theology of spiritual warfare, you will end up fighting with the people that you are supposed to be fighting for, and you will fight against the people that you should be fighting alongside. You see, one of the great tactics of the enemy is to convince us that the battle we should be fighting is not with him, but with each other. If he can convince you, put down your weapon against me and take up your sword against your fellow brother, he's already won. He's already won. You see, the battle, the battle that Paul is talking about in putting on these gospel shoes of peace is a, is a piece of our armor that we are to be using amongst the people of God so that when you enter room, you bring good news of peace. When you enter into a community, you bring good news of peace. When you enter into your different spheres of influence, you are a person of good news of peace. When you enter into different social spheres of influence and your friendships and relationships, whatever and wherever they, wherever they might be, you are a person of good news who brings good news of peace. Gospel shoes of peace. Are you seeing how the enemy works? Are you seeing how the enemy works? He, 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 he would love to stir anything that stands opposed to this gospel of peace. That's why Paul says, hey, get ready, get ready. Get ready with these shoes of peace. 
The next piece of armor that Paul mentions is the shield of faith. I love the word picture he gives us here. He says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. You know, this shield, again, if you picture it, was, was carried around by Roman soldiers. This was a protective mechanism that, that guarded them, that prevented any arrows from penetrating or to pierce through. It was a source of safety. It was a source of security. After all, without it, you would be vulnerable to attacks. You know, it's funny, as I got to thinking about the shield of faith, I started thinking about how my kids and I play when we're at home. You know, when, I, when, my, when I'm at home with my kids, we'll, we'll often grab some weapons, right? Like weapons in the house, whether it's a Nerf gun or a plastic sword or like just a bat, not a wooden bat, not a metal bat, but like a plat. Don't think I beat my kids. Like, I, you know, they, they, they beat me. Don't be confused. They beat me. And so we'll, we'll grab whatever weapon that we have and, and uh, we'll start attacking each other. We'll start going ham. Like, we'll just go, go crazy on it. Now, I always find it interesting that at this point in time, my wife is nowhere to be found. Like, she, she locks herself up in our, in our bedrooms. Like, I want no part in this. Hey, God, I wanted a house full of girls. You gave me a house full of boys. Well, that, that's what you get with a house full of boys, right? Like, all these crazy. And so, so as we play, right, we're, we're attacking each other. And, and it's, it's always interesting to me how differently the fight will go down if one of us has a shield, if you know what I'm talking about, like you grow up, you know, play fighting with, with, your, with your siblings, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, if you don't have a shield, oftentimes they're, like, my kids are way more, like, reserved. They're, they're, they're hiding more, right? They're, like, they're crouching behind, you, you know, because, like, they, they got nothing to protect themselves. They're not going to be coming, you know, railing out with, like, you know, just their bat and start swinging. They're just, they're way more apprehensive. But now, now. I notice that when they have a shield, whether it's a pillow or a cushion or, you know, whatever, some kind of covering, all of a sudden they, they grow some, you know what I mean? They, 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 get, they get a little bold and they're like, and they come charging out of, of the couch. They start coming around the corner and they start pushing forward. They'll attack just a little bit harder. They'll charge forward with a little bit more confidence. They'll fight with a little bit more courage. Paul says, take up the shield of faith. You see, faith is a kind of holy confidence. It's a kind of holy confidence. Faith allows us to charge forward against the gates of hell with a sense of holy confidence. And church, don't get your confidence confused. This is not talking about a self-confidence. This is not talking about being confident in yourself. Our culture does a great job of preaching about self-confidence. This is not that. You should be self-confident. Yeah, I I encourage self-confidence. Sure, that's good for your soul. That's good for your morale, you know, all of that. But that's not how you win a spiritual battle. It is not through self-confidence. You see, a holy confidence, holy confidence is different. A holy confidence is the kind of confidence that knows who God is and knows what he is capable of doing. Holy confidence is being sure of God's character and his abilities. Holy confidence says, I can't, but God can. I might not have it, but God does. I don't have the resources to win this war, but God certainly does. That is holy confidence. And Paul says, when you have that kind of faith, it doesn't matter how many flaming darts of the enemy come flying your way, none of them will harm you. None of them will even come close to touching you. Because you've taken up the shield of faith. 
That's what the shield of faith does. It provides us for us not just a sense of security and safety. It doesn't just provide us the opportunity to come out from under the couch or around the corner, but it actually enables us to charge forward the gates of hell with a sense of holy confidence. A confidence that says, I know who God is, and I know what my God is capable of. That's holy. That's faith. That's what faith is, and that's what Paul is talking about when he says, take up the shield of faith. He mentions the helmet of salvation next, but I actually want to hold that one till the end. And so the only piece of the armor that's left at this point is the sword of the Spirit. And Paul says quite explicitly here, we don't even have to go searching far and wide here because he tells us what the sword of the Spirit represents. He says, this is the word of God. Now, if you grew up in church and you grew up in, in Christian circles, many Christians would interpret this passage, this port, portion of scripture, to be the equivalent of holy scripture, right? Like, Paul, clearly Paul is talking about the Bible here, right? The holy scriptures, right? Well, yes and no. Yes, it includes scripture, but no, that's not the full picture. Yes, it's, he's talking about the Holy Scripture, the Bible, in part, but that's also not the full picture. You see, the word that Paul uses here, you may not know this, but the word that Paul uses here in the word of God is the rhema of God. The rhema of God, which actually means a spoken word. It, quite literally, it means an utterance. It's, it's like when, when you're talking to someone and you say something with your mouth and you say something from your lips, that is, the, that is your rhema, that is your spoken and uttered word, which is different from written word, which is logos, right? When, when in John chapter one, the word was God and the word was with God, that, that's the logos of God, the written word of God. And so when, when Paul talks about the word of God, He's not necessarily talking about Scripture the way we would think about Scripture, the Word of God that we would think about the way we would think about the Word of God. I should also point out that Paul calls this the sword of the Spirit. He doesn't call this the sword of God, the sword of Jesus, the sword of the Almighty One, the sword of the King. He doesn't say anything to that nature. He specifically calls this the sword of the Spirit. Now, the word Spirit here is in reference to the Holy Spirit of God. You want to know another terminology that the New Testament uses for the Holy Spirit of God and the word Spirit here? It's the word pneuma. You know what the word pneuma means? It's the breath of God. It's the breath of God. And so the Holy Spirit of God, the, the sword of the Spirit is the sword of the breath of of God. Now, what in the world am I getting at here? When it comes to this battle against the enemy of our soul, it's not your words or my words that's going to hold any power. Our words have no impact in the spiritual realm in this battle. It's only when God speaks, the enemy shudders. It's only when God utters a word that the enemy flees. It's only when God breathes his power that the enemy's camp trembles. He goes running the other way. That's what it looks like to wield the sword of the spirit. That's why, that's why for me, I always try to help people when I'm, when I'm counseling or talking to people. I don't ever want to direct them out of my own wisdom or my own thoughts. I want to help you hear and discern the voice of God in your life. 
Because when you're able to discern the voice of God and discern what he is saying, those words have power. Your words, my words, hold zero power. But the rhema of God, the pneuma of God, the sword of the spirit, think about this. Do you notice that this is the only piece of the armor that is an offensive tool, right? Like when you think about the shield, the, the, the shoes, right, the, the, all the, the breastplate, none of those are for offense. You can't defeat an enemy like that. In fact, when you think about a soldier without a sword, it's not very intimidating. It doesn't cause any enemy to go running in the opposite direction. Think about it. You're just standing there with a shield. How, how, I mean, how scary of a picture is that? It's not scary at all. You see, you see someone standing there with a breast, just, 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 just a breastplate. Like, what, it, what are you going to do? But when you wield a sword, all of a sudden, the mind of the enemy says, whoa, 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 whoa. Now this, this person means business. Now this person is about to do something that is going to invade and violate my values. And so the enemy comes at us, and when we wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the rhema of God, the word, the spoken word of God, are you discerning what the voice of God is saying in your life? When you're able to live out of that place of communing with God where you are walking in step with his Spirit, as Corinthian tells us, we're able to actually cause the enemy to go fleeing and running in the opposite direction. That's what the sword of the Spirit is. When God speaks, the enemy runs. That's the sword of the Spirit. This last piece, this last piece of the armor, and I'll wrap up with this. This last piece of the armor is the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Now, scholars believe that this was unlike the rest of the armor that Paul is describing here in that this helmet wasn't actually necessarily used for the purposes of defense or offense, right? You think about a helmet, you think about defense, like it's, it's to protect you. Yes, in some ways, yes. But in this word picture, rather, this helmet was, was meant to be a symbolic piece to the armor. It wasn't actually a functional piece in the way that some of these other pieces of the armor might have been used. In fact, this would have been Paul's equivalence of the Roman soldier's helmet of victory, the helmet of victory. In fact, as scholars did study on this, of this picture, the helmet of salvation, the, 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 the better sort of more, more prevalent word picture in mind to hold might have been this helmet of victory. You see, many times Roman warriors and soldiers would wear this particular helmet upon their heads to signify triumph and victory over their enemies. And they would wear it during wartime, but they would also wear it elsewhere. They would wear this helmet, and that's why they call this helmet the helmet of victory. And I can't help but wonder, along with other scholars in, in the past, when Paul mentions the helmet of salvation, I wonder if he's thinking to himself, people of God, this, when you put on the helmet of salvation, this is a sign of our victory. This is a sign of our triumph, that our salvation is a result of Christ's victory that he has accomplished on the cross. And so when it comes to this war against the enemy of our soul and all the demonic forces of evil, friends, you need to know this helmet of salvation signifies one thing and one thing alone. Jesus has already won. That's what that means. The helmet of salvation means Jesus has already purchased our salvation. He's already defeated the foe. He has one. That's why I love, I love what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Listen to what he says. He says, he, he being Christ Jesus, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He defeated them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
So when Paul says, put on the helmet of salvation, he's really saying, people of God, place upon your head the victor's crown. That's what that is. Jesus has already won. Jesus has already won this battle for you. As Revelation 7.10 says, for salvation belongs to our God. It's his. He's won it. He's bought it for us. This is the helmet of salvation. And so church, I wonder, are you getting the picture? Are you, are you getting the picture in your mind? For me, listen, I'm not trying to be unsympathetic, but it really bothers me when I see Christians just kind of walking through life, just head drooped down low and just kind of like, like going through life as, as if they're defeated foes. Like, like just, just walking in, 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 in defeat. It just really bothers me because the picture that we get from Scripture is not one of a Christian, of a, of a follower of Jesus. It's like, oh, you know, I'm just, the enemy won again. <laughs> the enemy got me again. I fell again. I, I screwed up again. I, I messed up again. And, and, and we walk in. And, and look, I, I, get, I get godly sorrow. I get remorse. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be remorseful and I think that's a part of this process. But at some point, the picture that we are to get is, no, 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 we stand. We stand with the belt of truth wrapped around us, with a breastplate of righteousness laid upon us, the gospel shoes of peace tied to us, and the, and the, and the shield of faith in one hand and the sword of the Spirit in the other, and the helmet of salvation resting upon our head, signifying Christ's victory and triumph over the enemy. That's how we stand firm against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Church, this is how we stand firm. Not like this, but like this. Did you notice how many times Paul said, stand? Stand. Ephesians 6, stand. Yeah, you, you, you're, you're not defeated. So stop living like you're defeated. You, Christ has won this battle for you. And so put on the armor of God. By the way, I, I, I didn't have this in my notes, but do you know that, do you know that all, of these, all of these word pictures actually come from Scripture? Sometimes I think we read Ephesians 6, the armor of God, and we think, why did Paul do that? Why did Paul mention belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, all these things? Do you know that all throughout the, the book of Isaiah, these are the word pictures that are used to describe God, that he has a breastplate of righteousness, that he's clothed with power, that he is girded with the belt of truth. These are pictures that we have of who God is. And so God says, and, and get this, again, not in my notes. I know we're wrapping up, wrapping up. But here, here's, I want you to track with me. All throughout Isaiah, we see this is the armor of God because it is God. This, this is, this, all this righteousness, truth, and, and, and sword of the spirit, all this, the word of God, all of these things, gospel of peace. This is the very nature and the character of God. That's Isaiah. You jump to Ephesians, and Ephesians, all throughout the book of Ephesians, what you'll find is that this concept of putting on, not just the armor, but, but Paul says, put on your new self. 
Put on this new self. What he's talking about is put on the very character of God. Put on who God is because you were made in the image of God. You were not made to be defeated foes walking with your head down. But you were made in the image of the almighty God. The armor of God was good enough for God. It is good enough for you. Put on God. And when you do, the enemy stands no chance against you because God has already won. You see, this armor isn't about putting it on and us fighting. It's about putting on God and allowing God's victory to reign supreme over the enemy's work. So again, I don't want us to get confused. This is not about a works-based gospel. Put on the armor so that we can work harder, fight harder, and all these things. No, this is the armor of God that is God. He is righteousness. He is truth. He is peace. And when we put God on, and folks, I know that can be confusing, but I don't have time to unpack all of that. But when we put God on, that's what Paul is talking about all throughout Ephesians. Put on God. Put on your new self in him. That's how we defeat these evil demogorgons. That's how we win this battle. 